Shop Talk Live, episode number 215. For this episode, we brought in contributing editor Steve Lotta, and we talk about cast iron vices, when to peg a mortise and tenon joint, what could have caused one listener's bandsaw blade to break, we answer the question, what is the actual difference between a jointer and a planer, and how a listener should go about making an oddly shaped piece for a desk he's building. But before we get started, I want to let everyone know that we just shipped issue 283 to the printers. And if you want to experience the joy that is opening up your mailbox and seeing a copy of Fine Woodworking Magazine in there, you should jump on that subscription right now. So head on over to finewoodworking.com, subscribe to the magazine, or even better, become an unlimited member, get the magazine shipped to your mailbox, and get full access to the website and experience all of the joys that is fine woodworking. It's the very best. All right, on with the show. As a Shop Talk Live listener, you know that if a project is worth doing, it's worth doing right. Pony Jorgensen takes the same pride in crafting their clamps as you do in crafting your furniture. Pony Jorgensen clamps are made using only the highest quality materials, and they inspect each one to guarantee consistency and performance. Head on over to PonyJorgensen.com to explore their wide range of pipe clamps, bar clamps, hand clamps, and one of my all-time favorite tools of all time, wooden hand screws. Pony Jorgensen, makers of clamps without compromise since 1903. So I am here joined by, as always, Jeff Rose and Mike Pekovich. And we are joined also by contributing editor extraordinaire, uh, teacher at Thaddeus Stevens College, um, all around killer, awesome woodworker guy, Steve Lotta. Well, thanks. Yeah. Awesome woodworker. Nice to be here. Nice to be here. So, so you've, you've just wrapped up your semester, huh? Yeah. It was the last class for the semester where next week is supposed to be finals week, but doing a woodworking final online, I don't think so. So we just had our last class. Yeah. You've been doing zoom classes. What do you what are, what are the challenges of this COVID-19 lockdown and teaching woodworking classes? Well, it's, it's been very interesting. I mean, our normal class day is about five hours. And then we have a couple hours of open shop for people just to kind of work. Well, during that time, one hour of it is theory where we're doing, you know, a technical going over machines, techniques, finishes, that sort of thing. And with the shutdown, basically, that's all we can do with the technical. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I do some demos, um, refer them to some videos and such. Uh, I got to say, I'm giving a plug to you guys. Um, Fine Woodworking opened up their whole website to my students, and that was very generous, and a lot of them took advantage of that. Good. So, Good. Because one of the things they're researching is their senior project for next fall. God willing, we're all back. And... Um, that was a good tool for them to be able to go there. Yeah. So you're also, you're using this as an opportunity to set up your own shop in the basement now, right? Yeah. Well, no, that's not in the basement. Um, when we bought this house, I've got a, it came with a three, a detached three bay, two story garage. And then last spring we had a fire in it, very mild fire, but you know, enough to have some work done on it. 
and I sealed one of the bays off, and now it's a two-bay garage with an uh, end that's just strictly shop. You know, we bought the place. I was going to set up a shop forever ago, and, like, I kind of realized right away that little kids in shops don't really work. So I'm not going to yell at the kids for leaving the door open in the summer. Um, I never do so, yeah, so basically, are they're all gone now. They've all grown up and flown the coop, so now it's time to get it set up. And I'm using this opportunity to uh, to make that happen. It's been great. Is it is it difficult? Um, I mean, because you're used to big industrial table saws, and I see that you've got what looks like a old Delta. I've got an old yeah, I got an old Delta Rockwell contractor saw that when I bought it. 30 some years ago used it was 600 bucks and that was a good price all right that was before all the imports got in the game and you could buy a, you know an imported table saw for 600 bucks a cabinet maker saw yeah um and i've got the and i also own the first saw i ever turned on which is a powermatic 66 with a factory ground six foot top okay and it's three, yeah, the whole top, no, no leaves, the whole top is factory ground. And uh, it needs a serious rehab because it's been sitting for 30 years. And the question now is, um, as nice as a saw, I saw a power, I, I saw a similar saw without the top, 250 bucks for sale because everybody's buying saw stops. Yeah. And there's a reason they're buying them. So I might end up making that swap myself. Yeah. yeah, but to answer your question directly, you make do with what you've got. It's all you can do. Yeah. It's all you can do. And it's, it's fun. It's innovative. You have to kind of problem solve. So that's good. Nice. Yes, Steve, I'm really glad you're finally in your own shop because of anybody I know not having a shop, it's to me, that was like the, the worst thing is for you. I know you had the school, which is where you were doing all your woodworking, but it's a big difference. Like when we had to find woodworking shop, we all yeah. took advantage of that, but I found that that's a huge difference working in my own shop as opposed to working in the fine woodworking shop. And I'm sure for you working in the school shop. Um, oh yeah. And I think, well, Oh, go ahead. No, no, it's, it, it was just weird though. I mean, I thought that way at first when we bought the property and then when having all the kids around, it's a completely different situation now, but I liked having a, okay, I'm going to work, so this 30-minute drive is going to disengage this part of life. Yeah. And then when I drive home, I disengage this part of life, and it made the transitions a whole lot easier. Yeah. So, But the kids are gone now, like I said. So. Right. Yeah, yeah, and the thing I found, and this is why I'm pretty excited about you having your own shop, is that without realizing it, whenever I was working in the fine woodworking shop, I was sort of in mentally working on company time, sort of working within mm -hmm. the framework of kind of that fine word woodworking aesthetic and what real furniture is. And when I got into my own shop, that's really when I started doing much more personal work. And I was, I found myself in my shop saying, coming up with these kind of strange ideas and asking myself, Oh, am I allowed to do that? It's like, yeah, no one knows you're in here doing this. And I'm looking at your stuff, especially with your inlay work, and I see you really sort of pushing towards your own kind of individual direction. And I can only see that being in your own shop is, is definitely going to reinforce your ability to kind of take things where you want to be going. Yeah, well, um, 
it, having to set up a shop at home and, and, and stuff, you know, I just turned, well, basically I just turned 60 not that long ago. And um, a friend of mine who was an art prof said, you know, you got to realize at 60, you probably have a good decade, maybe 15 years left of building, which is kind of harsh, but it might be true. Yeah. And his whole thing was, so when everybody, anybody asks you to do anything, you got to stop looking at it in terms of what am I going to get out of it to more like, what am I going to have to give up to do it? Because the bucket list of pieces that I want to make is already there. Yes. And, and as you said, um, as you said, Mike, a lot of it's my own design, which is an area I don't feel very comfortable. Right. Um, I will say one thing that I found uh, inspiring, and I got it from your book, which is what I share with my students, is you made the comment somewhere, I'm just paraphrasing here, but as you go to the next project, add something new to it, a new technique. So I'm doing this writing desk right now. Um, in maple, and the, the top's going to be a quarter sawn white oak top, cool. but I'm going to do a milk paint base, and uh-huh. uh, I've never done milk paint before, so I'm kind of looking forward to uh, hopefully not screwing that up too badly, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but we'll see. Okay. And in terms of the home, though, I've always done most of my inlaying stuff at home. Okay. I do have a, a, a spot in the basement that's set up for that, really, like three scroll saws and all that kind of stuff, cool. but so, but yeah. Yeah, it's been it's been fun seeing you share that because I've known you for years and years and years as as, you know, a guy who does, you know, federal style stringing and, you know, all of these techniques that that we love to share. But now watching you do these illustrative inlays, um, it's 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 really fun watching somebody who you think, you know what they do. And all of a sudden, they're going, no, you have no idea. So. I, know, I got typecast as Mr. Federal a long time ago, you know. And, and that's, that's just what it is. And I still do federal work occasionally. I've got a – what you'll start seeing coming up soon is the completion of a card table that I've got mm-hmm. that's going to have a hammer veneer top, which hopefully may, may turn into an article. I think that's sort of the plan. But that's what I'm diving on to after this um, table I'm wrapping up. Well, getting close to wrapping up. I don't know if I can get access to the wood for the top. You know, in this, the lumber yards aren't open around here. Yeah. So, you know. Oh, but. fingers crossed. Well, let's uh, <laughs> let's answer some listener questions. Um, sure. I'm going to throw you uh, uh, a, a softball right now, or whatever sports term works, Mister <laughs> Sports over here. Okay. Um, all right. So this one is from Ken. Uh, I have mounted an Eclipse 10 inch quick release vise on my workbench and attached maple chops. The vise is machined purposefully so that the jaws are not parallel, presumably for holding power. Are the chops that I attach supposed to be beveled to compensate for this? No, not at all. So, no, I mean, as you tighten, it goes like this. And you don't want it to ever go past that point. I mean, the bevel is intentional for holding power. He's, he's dead right in his assumption and he should not try to compensate for it. Just put so, them on. Yeah. So all vice, all cast iron vices are like that pretty much. I think I don't know about all, but the ones I've used to have been. Okay. I've never had to put a bevel onto my, um, add on pieces. I guess chops. I actually had to look that up when you sent, 
saw the question earlier is kind of like chops. You know, <laughs> I had to look it up and see, oh, that's what they call them. But yeah, I didn't know. So yeah. You're, so, no, I wouldn't bevel them. Okay. So you're a you're a connoisseur of old cast iron vices, right? Oh yeah, Abernathy. Yeah, those are the best. Abernathy. Abernathy? Yeah. Abernathy vice. Yeah, the old the old um Columbia's are great too. And you know, the, the, everybody always wants. And I had one. I had one for probably ten years. I got at an insane deal. I got a pattern maker's vice in Emmert, complete. And after ten years, I had never mounted it. So you know, I figure that said something. Yeah. I ended up selling it to a friend, um, and I don't know if he's ever mounted it. Because <laughs> I mean, it really becomes a massive um, part of your bench. Yeah. So, and I, I just have never needed a vice that substantial. So what, if, if, if you were building a, a new bench, what would you put on it for a vice? Yeah. Um, yeah, I gotta say, I think the bench craft and stuff looks real sweet. <laughs> um, I mean, it looks real, real sweet. Um, you know, you know, I do my upper bench, my mini bench thing. Yeah. On that, I always put an Abernathy. You know, I've got two of those, and those work great. And the be- the vice I'm using now, I made uh, 30 years ago at least. And it's, I mean, I made it. I got the thread made, and it wor- it's working great. I mean, I think we all had this notion that we have to have the newest and the best. Mm-hmm. And I, I, that that's a myth. That's a myth. So, so Mike, do, do you add wooden chops to your vices? Um, well, my, uh, I have cast iron vices. I have a couple record vices on my benches and I just have the inner jaws buried in an apron that goes along the front of my bench. So I have that continuous surface there. And so that is probably straightening up that inside jaw, you know, inside face vertically. But on the outside face, I just have a wooden, it's, it's an over length wooden piece just to give me a little bit wider capacity for holding. And that's just a square up board, which is just screwed directly to that. So my guess is there's still probably that, I guess you'd call it like a negative camber with the idea, Steve, you were saying, the idea is that as you tighten it up, it comes together as opposed to when you're tightening it up and that top starts to open up and flex. That's the worst thing that can happen. Right. So, yeah. So for audio only listeners, the top is going to touch before the middle or yes. bottom of, of the vice. Right. Yep. All right. Question number two is from Chase. When should you peg a tenon and when should you not? I have an entry table that I, that I'm making with square legs, mortise and tenon into aprons. There's certainly enough room for a quarter inch dowel, but it would get a little awkward with the dowels trying to intersect each other inside the leg. Should I drill the holes blind and short enough so that the two pegs don't intersect? Is it helpful or am I just further weakening the leg with pegs? Um, and the tenons are two and a half by seven eighths of an inch deep, uh, quarter of an inch thick. How wide is the apron? Uh, apron is three and a half inches. Okay. You want me to answer that? Yeah, go ahead, Steve. Um, Not me. Well, I, there's a couple of things going on there. Uh, when most people are relatively 
I don't know how, how experienced this gentleman is, but they tend to shoulder both the top and the bottom. So he probably has a half inch offset top and a half inch offset at the bottom. And if you look at original pieces, that offset on the bottom never, well, now I won't say never existed, but often didn't exist. Right. You keep a maximum, maximum amount of 10 in there. All right. Uh, second thing is quarter inch is big. I mean, that's a big doll or that's a big pin. Okay. And I usually am smaller than that. And when you're coming in from both sides of the leg, they're supposed to be staggered. Right. One is not going through the other one. So that intersection um, point, you know, is, is in, I think, not really accurate. And I can tell by what he's, there's a sort of this debate when it comes down to running mortises in the legs. Um, old timers regularly intersected them. So one would crash into the other and you'd miter them. If he's only going in seven eighths, he's probably of that school where they shouldn't hit, and and they're not. I tend to, I let them go right into each other. But so I mean, and the thing is that I've noticed with students, pegging is not draw boring is the right term. I mean, some okay. people put the thing together, glue it up, drill a hole, and then pound it in. Um, that's not the proper technique. It should be actually to a draw bore where, where it pulls it in. And that's a great technique on tables where your clamps are too long. I mean, you don't have long enough clamps because the pin becomes the clamp. Mm -hmm. But I also think it's an aesthetic thing because, I mean, you never see federal work that's pinned. It, it just, you just don't see it. So I think it's an aesthetic as well. But, yeah, I use, I love the draw board joinery and I use it where it's appropriate. I will also glue up like mortise and tenon components and then drill and, and pin afterwards. And a lot of that, I wouldn't say it's just aesthetic in that I think you maybe do get some mechanical strength over time by having that pin, but it's certainly not the same effect you're getting with the draw bore pin that you're talking about, which is really pulling that thing together. And you can sort of get by with a little bit sloppier tenon fit because you're really just triangulating off of the shoulder and the pin as opposed to relying on just the walls of the tenon for your glue strength. But um, So if, if, if I'm pegging a joint for strength purposes, without debate, you should probably draw bore it. Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think if it makes sense. I think if it's smaller tenons and also i don't draw bore steve you might be doing this differently but typically quarter inch is about the minimum pin diameter i use when i'm draw boring but a lot of times my furniture which is much lighter and more delicate mm -hmm. i'll go like a 3 pin and i i tend to not draw bore that do you draw bore with uh thinner uh dowel stock yeah as well? uh, yeah i'll go less than a quarter okay and see the way i'm doing it um when I drive my pins in, okay, the top end of it is square. Mm -hmm. So I will drive that square all the way into the surface. Okay. And then it ends up looking like a, a diamond. Yeah, right. And you can put a, you can actually put a crescent wrench on that piece as you're pounding it in to control um, what the final shape will be. Right. But that's just, that's just another aesthetic thing yep. as well. Yeah. Whether you like the square or whether you like, like the round. 
the, the big thing is not necessarily the size of the pin. It's the grain of the pin. Okay. You want nice, straight grain pin um, so you don't have things shearing off and breaking prematurely and all that kind of stuff. Right. How are, so, how are you making a pin that is that you're riving or, or straight grain from, from straight grain that's square on one end and round on the other. Are you making just a, a square dowel and then just carving it with a knife to round it off or. Um, I take a nice straight grain square dowel, square piece of stock, probably let's say six inches long. Mm-hmm. I chuck it in a drill. I go up to the belt sander and I just run it against the belt sander. Okay. And it tapers it very nicely, very quickly. All right. <laughs> you know, and I put a little more taper on the tip so it works its way through. And then I just, you know, okay. uh, no, I'm, I'm not there at the block playing, having a love affair with it. It's just, <laughs> I'm just getting it done, you know. Um, so. Now, let me ask you this, because this question's come up before, and I think we've ripped off your answer. Um, in the past, but if he has a seven eighths inch deep tenon, yeah, or mortise, where are you placing that pin in relation to the shoulder? Not in the middle. I mean, probably much much closer to the edge of the apron. Much closer to the edge of the apron because you want you want you you want to avoid the potential of splitting. Okay, the, so the so close, closer to the shoulder. Yeah, then. closer to the yeah, okay. closer right. to the edge of the leg rather than the interior of gotcha, the leg. Gotcha, gotcha. If that is clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, because uh, I think most people automatically would place it in the middle. The idea of something being centered aesthetically makes sense, but you're right, structurally, getting it closer to the shoulder, so you have more meat on the outside of the tenon, because I think the tenon is what's going to break under stress is that right steve i I would agree with you completely on that like yeah yeah you'll split it yeah okay yeah so that's why i mean i was always you know originally i said don't shoulder the bottom and all that i was always told maximum glue service Mm -hmm. so you make the mortises as long as you can you make them as wide as you can all of that maximizes glue Mm -hmm. surface okay all right, so I guess it's time for our, uh, our segment, and we didn't necessarily decide whether we we're going to do all-time favorite technique or all-time favorite tool. And Steve, you emailed me your uh, your answers, and you had really interesting ones. Um, Mike, do you have a, a preference? Um, this is the first I'm hearing about any any. Uh, I know yeah. I dropped the ball on on this uh, episode. I can I, I can uh, definitely do technique, but if I don't go first, I can come up with anything you want. <laughs> oh, I want to hear the technique. I want to hear your technique. All right, all right. Oh well, my technique is um, in honor of Steve being on the podcast because it's one of the most brilliant fundamental concepts of building um, that I employ without fail on every single piece I make, and it's something I stress in every single class I teach. Um, and I learned it or it really became highlighted, Steve. And I think the first article I did as an art director in issue 148, it was the Steve Latta's article on doing that little side table. Oh, the joinery. And, yeah. And uh, the one technique I got from that is that whole shoulder to shoulder distance is 
everything. And if you have components of, you know, if you have long tenons, short tenons, stub tenons, dovetails, and all those pieces end up as different lengths overall, cut them all the same length first, do all of your shoulders with the same setting, then do what you need to do with so that everything comes together square. And that obviously applies to far more than just a little table. I think it applies to every single piece of case construction I've ever done. So um, the Steve Lattish shoulder to shoulder technique is far and away probably one of the most uh, important things I've ever learned as a woodworker. Well, th thank you. And you know, I appreciate that. Uh, if you look at like the Instagram feed right now that I've got going where I'm doing that three drawer uh, writing desk, if you look at the dividers, the tenons are sticking way up past yeah. and below the two drawer blades. And that's just because I cut them the same length as the ones that go into the legs. Yeah. Just for the sake of efficiency. Right. And it's much easier to just trim those things off when it's time than it is to reset the saw and, and, and retry to and try to recut them. So but yeah, but no, I it, yeah, it's about efficiency. It's you know, it's, a, it's an approach that I think gives much more efficiency, it's faster, it's more accurate, and the work's much cleaner. Yeah, agree, 100%. So, uh, why, you know, it just, it just makes sense to me that way. Cool. So, well, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. So what am I answering? Tool or technique? or Whichever you want. We can, yeah. Well, yeah, Whichever it's, you want. it's funny because the one I've been playing with lately and I've been playing with – for years and it's great because you do something then you walk away from it and you come back to it oh wait a minute why didn't i see this before so i've been doing a lot of hammer veneering lately um partially prepping up for this card table top i've got to do but i think hammer veneering is probably one of my favorite techniques because it's just so efficient and and, and it's so speedy and I, I just like it quite a bit but then in terms of you know favorite tool the one that's been the biggest game changer in veneer work is a vacuum bag. So, I mean, if there's not like a yin-yang thing there going on, I don't know what is. But a vacuum bag, I, I put that up there with sliced bread, WD-40, and vice grip. Um, you know, it's just, yeah, it just makes things so, – because back in the day when we were doing serpentine doors and stuff, we had to make male and female – molds and compensate for the thickness of the drawer and throw some foam in there to make up for voids and and the vacuum bag has just changed all of that completely so it's you know it's just different but it's great when are you using if if you're veneering a flat panel when are you hammer veneering when are you using a vacuum bag? um i like to hammer veneer when i've got a lot of seams because like on a pie on a pie pattern table, okay, you're developing every scene one at a time as you go, mm -hmm. and it eliminates all that taping and such. And um, and if something shifted, you can see immediately that it shifted, and you just peel it off and put a new piece down. Um, back in the days when I was in the trade, where we did vacuum bag heavily, I mean, it only takes one time to pull something out and have something had shifted and opened up where you're just like, there's a lot of wasted work. So, yeah. but no, I mean, I use vacuum bag quite a bit, uh, quite a bit. So it's, yeah, there is no absolute 
but like I said, I love my vacuum bag. <laughs> so absolutely. So. Well, I guess for my uh, technique, it would be, and mine's kind of a technique and a tool. It would be steam bending followed by throwing it in the kiln. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say and throwing it in the trash oh, no. the <laughs> or the fireplace. <laughs> yes. So yeah. I've 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 been doing you you ukulele liners, and if I I steam bend them and you know sixteenth of an inch thick and steam bend them, put them on the form, uh, throw them in the kiln, and twelve hours later, no spring back, no movement. I can take the rubber bands off of the, that, that are clamping them onto the form. I can take the rubber bands off and wonder if they're somehow glued to the form. They are perfectly stable, solid. It's ben, just, ben, what, are you, what are you using for a kiln? I've just got a light bulb kiln right next to me right now. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, and I've got a, I've got a, uh, one of those ink bird thermostats mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, so I've got the whole, Thermo, was it was called thermocoil? What was that, Jeff? Thermocouple. Thermocouple. Thank you, Jeff. Um, and a little box, and I can set it to 140 degrees. I flip a switch. I've got another switch that'll turn on a little muffin fan to move some air in there if I want. And um, it's just, it's so nice having a kiln set up all the time, and I can dial the temperature into whatever I want. And where did you come up with 140 degrees? I'm just curious. I don't know. I, I, I think Jeff Lefkowitz. Mm-hmm. I think that's where he tries to dial in his kiln. And he just, he, he controls the temperature um, by opening the door to his kiln mm-hmm. or closing it. And um, my shop in the wintertime gets really cold. So I didn't want to lose that much energy. So I thought that if I actually had a, a thermostat, control it it would be better mm-hmm. and um yeah that, that, that's just the same temperature for high glue that's just kind of like a magic number i guess maybe 140 is in my head for that i don't know i just yeah. dial in 140 and that's what it's working <clears throat> so yeah all right uh let's take a quick break and we'll be back for more questions Regardless of your skill level in woodworking or home repair, you want a glue that you can trust. Because a glue that doesn't work can ruin any project in a hurry. Fortunately, Tightbond has the glue you need to get the job done with confidence. From interior glues with strong initial tack and short clamp times, to exterior glues with exceptional strength and water resistance, look to Tightbond, the right glue for your next project. For more information, visit tightbond.com. T-I-T-E-B-O-N-D dot com. All right. Question number three is from Larry. The other day I was making a straight cut with my three quarter inch wide blade on my 16 inch bandsaw. I had been cutting one inch thick cherry and noticed that there were places where the feed rate was very quick and in places where it slowed considerably. I was pushing with the same force throughout the cut. I attributed this very these variations to the density of the wood. Then I switched to one inch thick hard maple, keeping the feed rate very slow the whole time. I took my time and I didn't force it. As I neared the end of the first cut, the blade started moving back and forth, not side to side in the cut. I stopped pushing and reached for the switch, but before I could reach the blade, it broke. 
or before I could reach it, the blade broke. I checked the guides and the thrust bearings to see if one had slipped. Nothing had moved. The top guides were about one inch above the board. Do you have any idea why the blade would move back and forth? I assume it broke and came off the wheel, but why? So what, like what's, what's happening in a bandsaw when something, when something like this happens? A uh, lot of unknown information here. Okay. Like where, where were the guides positioned? I mean, they should be right behind the gullet. How many TPI? You know, usually, I mean, for, for what, well, like what I tell my students is typically the more teeth, the smoother the cut. Okay. But that is not true for a bandsaw because okay. a bandsaw has to get the dust out of there. Those gullets have to catch it and pull it out. So, you know, where were the guides positioned? How many TPI on the blade? Could have been a bad weld too for all that. So, you know, you got thoughts on that, Mike? Or um, Exactly what you're saying, especially, you know, where was the thrust bearings behind the blade? Were they super tight? Or was the blade sort of flexing back under pressure? And also, if you're resawing a lot of wood, how sharp was the blade at this point in time? Um, but in terms of that sort of going slow and then faster, I experience that quite a bit when I'm resawing. And I attribute that to as you're sawing and the sawdust starts to kind of build up in the gullets. But then once it clears and it really starts cutting well and the sawdust really starts getting ejected, um, it goes faster. So that kind of slow and fast, I experience that quite a bit. For me, if I if the blade is not tracking side to side, whether it's a little wiggle or if it really wants to pull to one side while I'm resawing, it's a dull blade. And the first thing I do is I just throw a sharp blade on there. And that tends to solve about 90% of the problems I have with my bandsaw setup. Um, with, with that in mind, how often do you break a, break a blade, Mike? Um, <clears throat> I would probably say, I can't, I can't remember the last one I broke. So I would say less than once a year, because okay. I think I'm, when I buy bandsaw blades, I buy three or four at a time and I'm really quick to change them out. I'm really bad at throwing out the blades that I know are dull. I just can't bring myself to do it. So I hang them up on my wall. Yeah. And I've got like 20 used bandsaw blades that I'll never <laughs> right. put on my saw right. again. Right. But right. I do change them out really quickly. And usually yeah. if it's a beginning of a job and there's a lot of resawing, yeah, right away, I'll just put a fresh blade on there. And in terms of the cost of the blade versus performance, I think that's a really good value is just, you know, I don't buy the super expensive carbide blades. I just get blades that are, I don't know, 20 or 30 bucks a pop or something like that. And um, just keep them sharp. Did you ever use carbide blades, Steve? No, I, I, I usually get the wood slicers okay. and those, those, those work, those work well. Um, we break a lot of blades at the school yeah. and, uh, the reasons, well, it's different than this scenario. Nine times out of 10 is trying to take too tight of a radius. Yeah. They're just trying to take too tight of a radius on a blade. And the, the thing about his scenario, unless he pulled the board back, I really doubt if it came off the front wheel. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, usually when you have a piece pinching and you pull it back, that's what takes it off the wheel. Doesn't okay. sound like he was doing that. So, um, not, not quite sure if I agree with the fact that it came off the wheel. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
do you think that heat is what breaks most bandsaw blades or is it just a bend that forms and yeah i mean it's typically it's probably some sort of work hardening meaning there's a flex involved along with the heat so if you're resawing and you're if you put a lot of pressure on your blade front to to back and those thrust bearings aren't right against the blade or if they're far enough apart to where you're actually bowing the blade slightly between those two then you can imagine as this thing is is spinning fairly rapidly and then bowing in one area pretty significantly i think that's where you might start to work hard in that steel a little bit and get it just a little bit too brittle and that's when it breaks that's just a guess yeah and i i think the tension indicators that come on saws or i mean they're a joke i mean you know it assumes the blades at the exact length and you know yeah and then they say well a quarter inch play you know Tension is often a problem. Yeah. Uh, Over tightening and that kind of thing. So, yeah, or a bad weld, or a bad bad weld. So, so so it almost sounds like this might have happened in that first cherry board. Maybe, maybe something was happening where he was having that odd feed rate issue, and and he got some work hardening in the blade, and then the maple just was enough to, to throw it or. Um, there's, yeah, just too, there's too yeah. many unknown variables. Yeah, but yeah I mean, yeah. He, he, you know, woods do vary in density, and so there are soft spots and hard spots. Yeah. Um, so I think he was right in that assumption, but you know, too many, a lot of variables there. Okay. All right. Well, um, let's see. Let's go to question number four, and this one had us scratching our heads for a while. And uh, there's some photos that we'll put on the show notes. Uh, it's from Josh. I am a 21 year old burgeoning woodworker in California. I'm currently building a desk organizer for my girlfriend who's about to graduate college and attend law school. The only problem I have encountered thus far is regarding the center tray. I have a piece of six quarter English walnut that I acquired from a, from a local milling shop. And I need to add a draft angle so that one edge is a half inch thick is a half inch in thickness and the rear measures an inch and a quarter. So he wants to make a wedge along the face of this board. I had thought of building a sled of sorts to add an angle, then run the whole apparatus through my planer. But I feel like that might be slightly dangerous. The dimensions of the stock are an inch and a quarter by eight inch by 13 and the pockets will be milled after the angle is added using my small desktop CNC machine. So the pockets are like for pencil and pen storage or organization. How would you approach this problem? Hand tools Buy a bigger bandsaw. I'm excited to hear your input and thank you for providing, for providing such an informative, entertaining and exciting way to approach this wonderful hobby. I don't know about that last sentence, but so Steve, I'm going to let you go second. Sure. Because you, you, you kind of showed your cards off, off air. Uh, Mike, how are you doing yeah. this one? Oh, so like, I'm going to give my answer. Then Steve's going to give the right answer. This is, <laughs> this is rough. A um, couple things. So basically how wide was this board? It looked like it was maybe 10 inches wide or so. Uh, eight inches wide, eight inches wide. Oh, that's not too bad. Um, couple things. Yeah. The, 
making a sled or a new bed for your planer to create that angle and running it through is great. Um, you could also get pretty close if it's only eight inches. You can, you know, resaw that at a slight angle. You can. He's maybe, got six inches of resaw just for the. On his bandsaw? Yeah. Okay. Well, another option is if this were really wide, the other option I was going to give is just like rip it in half. And so now you've got two four inch boards that you can resaw pretty easily on the bandsaw, leave it rough, glue them back together. And now your angle is pretty much there. So if you're going through the planer, you're not remo removing a lot of stock, or if you're just hitting it with a hand plane, all you're doing is just hitting a line now instead of removing a half inch of stock. So a couple ways I might go about doing it. Hmm. I th okay. So like, what's the real answer? No, I, I actually, I just love what you said. Because <laughs> if you plan that right, that cut, it'll fold over on itself. Oh yeah. There you go. Yes. And you'll have it. Yeah. You know, so you just plan it right. It just piece flips over and you've got your whole slant. Yeah. That's even so that better. Would, yeah. That would work perfect. So like that a book match slant. Well, yeah, you yeah, start yeah. like with a piece of like a quarter stock and yeah, if you draw it out, right. You saw it at an angle. You take the one piece, you flip it over and glue it back onto the, the other piece. And it's, perfect perfectly the angle should line up just right yeah i mean wh wh when i saw the illustration you had to see the illustration for this to make any sense yeah my first statement was why doesn't he do the whole thing on the cnc yeah and the yeah, just, just route it back and forth <laughs> um you know the problem he's going to get it <laughs> We have a guest. <laughs> um, and but see the thing is, one of the things that's going to happen is when he does all those cutouts, he's going to have a whole bunch of rough edges. Yeah, uh, a lot of chip out. So he's probably going to take the whole thing over the joiner at that point. Oh, okay. Or maybe through the sled on his planer again. Okay. Uh, to get one more, you know, clean edge because I just know from experience all those plunges in, he's going to have rough edges on the top. Okay that are going to need to be cleaned up. So you're probably the only guy we know and talk to on a regular basis who, who has a lot of experience with CNC's. I have a mild amount of experience with CNC. Okay. Your students have a lot of experience with CNC. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not really part of my curriculum. It's more part of the second year curriculum. I mean, I, I use it. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not the whiz kid at it by any stretch of the yeah. imagination. So, I've yeah. seen the work of some of your students and they come out of your program knowing some CNCs. That's all. Oh, yeah. John, John also did an entire, which blew me away, um, card table where he cut all the veneer um, <laughs> for the whole pie pattern, rabbited for the cross spanning, and all, did the whole thing on CNC, wow. which was really cool. I will say I could have made five of those tables at the time. <laughs> it, it took him to figure it all out. But, you know, but that was the, the idea was to figure it out. Now, if he had five to do after that, he'd be yeah. way ahead of him. Yeah, but yeah, so. by the time you made six, he'd have made 30. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, see, everyone thinks CNC is perfect. And CNCs have glitches. Yeah. I mean, they're just running off and they decide to do, whoop, and they just keep going. And it's like, what the hell was that? Yeah. And your whole top's trash because it had a little brain thing or lack of brain thing happening. Yeah. So they do that. Yeah. I, I have a little desktop CNC and like 
to this day, I can still hear the sound of that, that router bit plunging suddenly you type in the wrong number. And instead of a fourth of a millimeter, it's tight. It's diving in four inches because it's going to do whatever you tell it to do. And even if, even if the rails don't go far enough, it's just going to, yeah, it just, it goes South real quick on a CNC machine. Mm -hmm. But, um, so the idea of milling this out with the CNC, that's a solid. Oh yeah. Good application. Great application for it. Are they making all these little router templates you got to do? Yeah. So, yeah. See, if you did a router template, you'd have to start out with the thing full thickness. Right. Do all your routing. Plunge it all out and then put the angle on it. Right. Uh, The CNC makes it just much easier. Yeah. 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 So if, if he doesn't have the machinery to, other than cutting it in half, your idea, Mike, and if he doesn't, yeah, if, if, if he doesn't want to make the, the planer sled, that's a fantastic option. Yeah, absolutely. So this one I save for you, Steve, because you probably answer this question hundreds yeah. of times a year. Uh, if I had a jointer and a planer, or this one is from Bob. If I had a jointer and a planer, I might know the answer to this question, but he doesn't, obviously. If a jointer makes a lumber flat and square, why couldn't you do all of the flattening on a joiner? Is there something about a planer that flattens wood better? And if you don't know the answer to this question, you don't know. That's And there, there are definitely listeners out there. We're going to go, oh, if you don't know. Well, so, the problem is it's too hard to flip a joiner over and hold it upside down. When you, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's. I get asked that question a lot, and it's not necessarily by newbie students. Yeah. I I teach at another school besides Stevens, and I've had a professor in applied engineering ask me that exact same question. Yeah. So it's not as far out uh, as you think. The bottom line is a joiner makes one face or one edge flat. A planer takes the opposing face parallel. So you could take a board and joint both faces of it, but the probability or the likelihood of those sides being parallel is pretty much nil. So a joiner takes it flat, a planer takes it parallel, which is why for a lot of stock, um, I mean, there used to be this myth forever ago that in terms of the steps for dimensioning a board by uh, machine, rip a 16th over and then go back to the joiner. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. no, because that assumes every step went meticulously perfect and the board didn't distort at all. Yeah. But for a lot of dimensioning, um, we'll rip to like a 16th or an eighth inch over, and rather than go to the joiner, We'll run it through the planer on it. Yeah. And that eliminates the saw marks and it gives a guaranteed uh, uh, width. So we do that quite a bit. Yeah. But, but to answer the question directly, joiner flattens, plane takes parallel. Yeah. Plane okay. takes parallel. And maybe the problem has always been that the planer is the most misunderstood tool in the equation. Because you think that the planer makes things flat. It doesn't. 
It makes, uh, it makes other, the opposing face flat. Yeah. yeah. Or parallel to the first face. Yeah. If that's not flat, the other face is not going to be flat either. I mean, you can take a long, twisty board and run it through the planer and then flip it over and run it through the planer again, and you'll have two parallel faces. But the board will not be flat. Yeah, it'll just it'll be, just parallel be a, twisty. a thinner, yeah. long plane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and that comes into play if you're purchasing. A lot of times, if you're purchasing lumber pre-surfaced S two S, yeah, because they're running it through at what we used to call a stratoplaner, which has a joiner head and a planer head just real close to each other. And the problem is the pressure bar just presses the board flat, and when it escapes, that tension comes out. I mean, it's flatter than it was going in, but it's still not flat. Yeah. It's one thing so. if you're going to nail it to a wall to flatten it out, like if it's long runs of trim and stuff, but for furniture, it should be flat. Hey, Steve, so here's a question, which is probably even more common than that. It's um, if, I, if I'm only going to buy a joiner or a planer, which one is better to own? And again, it sort of speaks to maybe a lack of understanding about how they pair up but i do think it's a legitimate question for people who don't have the cash to spend on both what would you start out with and sort of how would you get around only having one of those things um yeah i've never thought about this before and my my gut tells me i'd probably get a small planer first and the only reason i'm saying that is it's relatively easy to flatten a face or an edge with the hand plane. Yeah. Um, the parallel part's a whole new ball game. Yeah. But um, I, I've never, I, I'd have to think about that more, but that's, that's my gut reaction. That makes sense. That's my gut reaction. I mean, I'll tell you what I did when I was starting out. I, I just talking to my students about this recently. When I, when I was probably, you know, 19, I went out and got a line of credit from the bank. And when a joiner popped up, I bought it. And when a planer popped up, I bought it, you know, and, that work you really do need i think you need both but we have this era now of hand tool everything which i which i think is great but it, you're not going to make a living doing it that way or very 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 few people with a niche market are going to make it that way well so, i think you can make it you're just not going to make it by selling the furniture that you make you may make it by teaching other people how to use hand planes or hand tools yeah that yeah, would be yeah. Okay. So. Well, it's a supplement, a little bit from here, a little sure. bit from there, yeah. you know, so, but yeah. So when Steve, you, you go to, where do you go to in the summer to build cabinetry and. Or to teach? Well, no, you, you, you travel to South America or. Oh no, I go, I, every, um, February, March, I go to Honduras with some friends. Okay. And, uh, we just kind of swing hammers and build what we go down there and what's needed. You know, okay. last time we were there, we made church pews and pulpits and um, cabinet. It's just, you know, made some doors, made some windows. You know, and I mean, it's it, it's it's a great shop. It's way up in the mountains. Um, the power goes out every day. Uh, I mean, sometimes the lumber is lumber that was sawn three weeks ago. And when you run it up through the planer, the water's spattering <laughs> off of it. <laughs> you know, okay, that's what we do. Yeah. You know, this is what we got. This is what we do. But, okay. I, but I love it. It's a lot of fun. But but you're still you're still well equipped down there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
and I'm not, not trying to plug a tool or whatever, or, or maybe I am, but uh, they've, they've got one of these Woodmaster planers. Yeah. And I mean, this thing has been sitting outside for probably 20 years. <laughs> yes. Every time we go down there, a friend of mine, Barrett, you know, gives it a quick little squirt of oil here, squirt of oil there. And that thing, I mean, it's just a champ. <laughs> it's just a simple little tool, you know, and it just keeps on going forever and ever and ever. Same thing, we got a, a Rockwell contractor saw that in. Last year, it burned up a motor, so we had to put a new motor in it. And finding a motor up and, you know, it's not the easiest thing to do, but we made it work. Actually, finding the motor was, um, it had a different size arbor. So we found the motor, but trying to find the pulley, well, when we left, the motor was, the saw was running at about a third of the speed that it was supposed to. And you know, you're trying to rip the bar, just like taking its time, but I'm sure we'll bring a pulley down with us next time. So, you know. You may you may do with what you have. It's that's all you can do. That's great. Yeah. Do 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 you think that working like that every now and then makes you a better teacher, makes you a better woodworker? Or oh yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think having to set up shop again makes me a better woodworker, better teacher. Because when you have everything, it's pretty easy. You know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like half the fun that I'm I'm just tickled doing this now is I've got clamps and stuff that I've been hauling around for three moves. And it's like, wow, this thing still works, you know? (laughs) And and most of my clamps are these old vintage Hargrave or um, Hartfords. And they're pretty much as good as or better than anything I'm going to buy new today. So I'm I'm tickled. Yeah, there's no shelf life to those things. No, no. I yeah I I bought a couple in five bucks a piece, uh, twenty four inch Hartford bar clamps, rusted solid, clean well, them up. They're great. I, I had all these great Hargrave hand clamps, and I made the mistake of letting my good friend Bob Van Dyke know I liked. Ah. <laughs> and next thing I know, we were competing with each other on eBay trying to buy these clamps. Like Bob, back off! I got you first. <laughs> And back and forth. So, but oh, they're the best. Yeah. I mean, they're the best. So, yeah. Well, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you've got a shop starting set up. I'm, I'm glad you're excited about it too. So oh, I've got a whole list of projects that are coming down the pike. That's awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm looking very much forward to that. So awesome. awesome. Well, I think that about does it for this episode of shop talk live. If you have questions you'd like us to answer on the show, send them into shop talk at uh, you should follow Steve on Instagram. What's your handle, Steve? Uh, Steve underline Latta Woodwork. Just um, search for Steve yeah. Latta and you'll, you'll Yeah, find you'll find it. it. Yeah. You'll find it. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, click that thumbs up button. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode or next week with another episode, actually. Thanks for listening. That's the best yeah. thing. <laughs> when your internet goes out and you reconnect, oh shoot, he's back already. That's what you want to hear. Well, if you feel that way about him, Mike, you really shouldn't work with him. <laughs> <laughs>